In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and narco capitalist perspective. Tonight is Festivus Night, and this is the airing of grievances and feats of strength. T'was the night before the night before Christmas, and we're finally recording. The wait has been ginormous, but we promise not boring. We're doing Elf tonight on episode 108 of the show. Show notes and more can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 108. And quick hit of trivia for Robert before we get into the last night's portion of the show is that the taxi cab that hits Will Ferrell's character Elf, Buddy the Elf, has a medallion or a like a placard on the top of the cab. Do you know the numbers and letters combination, Robert, on the top of that taxi cab? Nobody knows that. That reminds me of the questions that I got at last week's trivia, which was a specialized Christmas trivia written by a guy who doesn't normally write quizzes. And they were all ridiculous, obscure crap that nobody knew. And it was by the grace of the holy Jesus that uh, we got as many as we did. Sweet baby Jesus. Yeah. Sweet little baby Jesus, you know, in the manger. But yeah, no, I don't I don't know that answer. But one of the questions was, according to the movie Elf, what are the an elf's four food groups? And we got three out of four. The okay. actual answer, the actual answer is candy canes, candy, candy corn, and syrup. But we did not get candy canes. We said gingerbread instead. Oh well. Still, it's all right. Still failure. Failure. Yeah. All but, right. Well, but one of the questions was what day is Festivus? And I had no idea. Honestly, I, I was a big Seinfeld fan. I've seen every episode, seen every episode multiple times, actually. But I mean, are you kidding me? Who remembers the exact day? And the person I was with was like, maybe it's after Christmas. And I was like, no, it's, it's, it's probably right before Christmas. And I just guessed the 23rd. And I was right. It's the Festivus and for face. the rest of us. So there are feats of strength and areas airings of grievances and i must say that there were some grievances aired on my part today but it sounds like you grieved a whole lot more due to your lack of power at your abode yes the lack of power and internet which has resulted in such a late date of recording for the show and uh so that uh airing of grievances can be yours for the small price of five dollars a month at our patreon so hit us up at actualanarchy.com patreon and you will hear all about it it's so good if you're still on Patreon. Oh, yeah. If we haven't been kicked off yet. Now, the no, answer... I mean, if, if the people we're listening actually still are on Patreon. Oh, right. Because we're late with the show. So they might have been like, you know what? Screw you guys. No. Or they've taken their money off Patreon in protest due to the treatment of like people like Sargon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's true, too. Yes. Yes. Yeah. There's been a lot of uh, a lot of tomfoolery going on on the old patreon lately but uh, we're still on there at least for now until something better comes along and we'll be more than happy to uh, move on to greener pastures now the answer to my trivia question before we get into the last night's portion of the show is this Mm, mm. and it's only relevant to the actual anarchy audience hence why it's happening right now Mm, mm -hmm. the placard reads 27x4 why is this significant indeed why (laughs) 27 times 4. What's that number, Robert? Uh, That's 108. That's right. Ding, ding, ding. Chicken dinner. 
This is that 108th episode of the Action Hierarchy Podcast. This is episode 108. So the placard is... Did you set this up? Illuminati confirmed. Did you did you organize this? No, it's just a, a random happenstance. But it's crazy, right? I mean, it's a little bit crazy. I think you should have said yes. I went to great lengths to make sure that this all coincided. I'm oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let's rewind the tape. <laughs> Uh, yes, it's. Uh, I selected this weeks in advance. I knew that Christmas and a Christmas movie, and by the way, the second most Christmas movie of all time, uh, second only to Die Hard, which we did last year for Christmas, was Shaheen, the Anarchap. Uh, that was a good one. Uh, yeah, I, I selected this. I, I, I plotted so far in advance to make sure that the, the placard matched up with the episode 108. Do you have a list of movies that are most Christmas to least Christmas? Maybe like Hellraiser would be the least Christmas movie, but Elf and Die Hard are the most Christmas movies. There was a Die Hard question, by the way. What's the um, what's the uh, building in which Die Hard action takes place? Nakatomi Plaza. Nakatomi Plaza is absolutely correct. Who so doesn't know that? Of course it's Nakatomi Plaza. Everyone knows this. I don't know if everybody knows it, but that was one of the questions on my quiz. All right. Well, this has been a bonus, bonus-sized content, a ginormous bonus-sized content of the actual Anarchy content prior to getting into the last night's portion of the show, which we shall do directly moving to last nighters Hey everyone, it's Daniel and Robert, the last nighters and we are doing episode 51 of the show on elf. A oh, very, yeah? very Christmas movie that I'm sure will have a whole bunch of acrimony between Robert and I. So much so oh, man. that We're he's going to be doing. Yes. And we are recording this on Festivus, the night before the night before Christmas. And uh, so as part of the airing of grievances, Robert shall be doing oh. the duties of the Gilga description. So if you will, sir. Yeah, I'm going to say I'm angry, too. Like I'm angry about him. Daniel did something. So Elf was rated parental guidance because, you know. I guess it couldn't be G. There are some like adult situations, I guess. I don't know. Who knows? 2003 fantasy romance. One hour, 37 minutes. Buddy, played by aging comedian Will Ferrell, was accidentally transported to the North Pole as a toddler and raised to adulthood among Santa's elves. Unable to shake the feeling that he doesn't fit in, the adult Buddy travels to New York City New York City. In full elf uniform. Get a in rope. In search of his real father. Real, as it happens, this is Walter Hobbs, played by stunningly handsome young comedian James Kahn, a cynical businessman. After a Dana test proves this, Walter reluctantly attempts to start a relationship with the childlike buddy with increasingly chaotic results. Release date, November 7, 2003. Director, John Favreau. Box office of 220.4 million USDs, uh, 6.9 out of 10 on the IMDb's, 83% Rotten Tomatoes, 64% Metacritic, and 91% of Google users approve of this film. So what do you think of that angry description of the movie Elf, Daniel? What do I think of them apples? Um, I think that there is a good reason why I normally do the Google description. Because I did it better and you're jealous? Coach Jelsey. No, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's, it's pretty uh, accurate to the movie. I mean, there's not a whole lot really going on here. It's just it's a vehicle to make Will Ferrell be able to uh, be funny and childlike and uh, wrap a little bit of Christmas spirit around it, shed a few tears here and there, and and there you go. You got an elf movie. Yeah, this movie seemed to me to be a lot like a lot of the Jim Carrey vehicles or other kind of movies where it's just kind of an excuse for a comedian to do a lot of funny things. So there's a bunch of like gags where he's kind of a fish out of water and he's walking around New York and he doesn't know how things work and what's this thing? And I'm going to just eat gum and old gum. And I'm going to, I don't know how escalators work or how rotating doors work or whatever. And it's like, okay, I guess maybe a seven-year-old would laugh at this. Uh, I, I don't know. Well, you know, it made sense to me uh, that, Growing up in the North Pole, that he would not be familiar with those things, and so you can kind of get away with the fish out of water play a bit, and and I don't think they harp on it too much. No, I mean there's it's kind of like a montage, like a ten minute montage of him being wild and wacky. 
Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not too bad. It's not too bad. Oh, and by the way, The Last Nighters is part of the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. I always forget to mention that uh, until way too late in the show. We really should open with that. But do check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Super good stuff there. I agree. Oh, uh, and one other thing. Since we're in the announcement mode, um, Tom Wood's Liberty Classroom is on sale right now for the next couple of days right around Christmas. So if you do have any inkling to get that for yourself uh, with the money from Grandma, uh, the $3 she tapes into the card, uh, it's 35% off right now. And if you get the master membership, you get all of his courses that he created for the Ron Paul homeschool curriculum as well. Uh, and the one I recommend the most there is the course on government. Um, it's 90 lessons and you get a full uh, full dissertation of you know where rights originated uh, historically and different forms of government and the consequences of each. And it's uh, really quite good. So do check that out. And if you buy on our affiliate link, uh, we would greatly appreciate it and also give you some uh, free bonuses like a membership to readit4.me, which is a service where you get uh, business books and uh, self-improvement books summarized in 10 or 15 minute chunks so that you can get you know 80% of the content in about 5% of the time that it would take to go through that book as if you were to do it on your own. So it's a, it's a big time saver and it will be yours gratis if you buy it on our affiliate link. So check that out at uh, lastnighters.com slash Liberty Classroom. Now out of announcement mode, back into Elf, Robert, where do you want to take us on this journey through the candy cane forest and, and then through the Lincoln Tunnel? Well, why don't we start at the beginning, Daniel? I suppose that's a decent place to start. Let's so do that. at the very, very, very beginning, well, there's like Bob Newhart, like talking to you. But after that, then they're up at the North Pole and young uh, buddy Elf has grown into be middle-aged Will Ferrell. And he is trying to be a toy assembler guy, but he can only do like 2078 Etch-a-Sketches and everybody else is doing like 900. And he's upset. So they put him into quality control and he's still not great at that. And he's just a not an elf. He's just not an elf. He's a, he's a human trying to be an elf. And I got, I don't know why humans are so inferior to elves, but they just are, I guess. I guess this movie's trying to make a statement about the inferiority of humans. But anyway, you made an interesting point that was instantly disputed by a friend of mine <laughs> that the North Pole is socialist. And so I, I was going to give you the opportunity to defend yourself, sir. Defend your argument if you are can, because, you know, it's kind of a claim. It's kind of a claim where you'd back up that claim and then uh, talk about it. So why don't you start off and try and defend your claim, sir? All right. So this will be a feat of strength. And this is actually related to uh, a little bit further back and in Bob Bob Newhart's um, opening uh, to the story where he says, there are only three types of jobs that elves can even do. One is being a, uh, a shoemaker while the cobbler, the lazy cobbler sleeps. Uh, the other is being a baker in an oak tree, uh, especially during the dry season, which is a bad combination because then the tree catches on fire. And then the third and final is what they call the show, which is like being called up to the big leagues in baseball, where they work in Santa's uh, workshop, creating toys for all the good girls and boys on Santa's naughty and nice list. And the um, elves are specially suited for this due to their nimble fingers and quick minds uh, that make them very well suited to the task. And uh, I think that that often gets conflated with the, um, uh, you know, bad, poor taste jokes about child labor in uh, third world countries where they have tiny little quick hands. And um, but, you know, I will actually defend child labor uh, in, in a certain respect in that it's a better thing that they're doing than what their alternative might be. So some do-gooder might go out and try to prevent them from being able to have that opportunity. And then they'll end up doing something even worse. And that's unfortunately what people um who try to do good often have unintended consequences that are actually worse off for those that they're supposedly trying to help. But And we can get into that if you'd like, Robert. Uh, totally unrelated to Elf in a way. But anyway, uh, my point with it being um, a bit socialist is that it's sort of a totalitarian system of elves are only able to have um, movement into three occupations, like they are prevented by some outside force. Uh, I would assume that this would be some kind of a governmental force or backed by a monopoly on violence. Um, it is not a free market of, of being able to enter into any occupation um, freely and, and moving among occupations. So that was my argument for why I would consider it socialist or totalitarian control. All right. Well, but you're, you're using a lot of inferring. I mean, yes, the, the, um, the saying that there's only three jobs is, 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 first of all, it's clearly a joke. But since 
we don't care about jokes. We need to take this stuff seriously. I, I can I can take it as a joke. It's fine. <laughs> well, the the whole Keebler elf joke, and then the the elf making the 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 cobbling shoes when the the lazy cobbler is asleep. I mean, those are references to other things, to other you know stories, not to you know, like this cohesive world that they have built. Right. Yes. Yes. And and that's all they're supposed to be is like little nods to other things, little uh, tips of the hat so to speak. They're not writing a, a movie as a treatise on economics here. Definitely not, because if this is a socialist world, it apparently works, but only due to the fact that Santa seems to have an inexhaustible supply of materials with which to craft his toys. Right. It's the Garden of Eden model. There's right. there's no scarcity. So there's no scarcity. He has magic to back it up, whereas socialism will work for a certain amount of time as a la like Venezuela. But once the magic of oil dries up or the ability to harvest the oil due to government incompetence and driving out private investors because you're stealing their land and their businesses, then it all dries up and it all collapses. So if the North Pole were to suddenly suffer some sort of magic shortage and they couldn't make toys, I would imagine that they would quickly stop operating. Yeah, well, they do have a shortage of Christmas spirit, right? And that's why they need the Nimbus 5 thousand for the uh the power boost on the santa sleigh to be able to get it off the ground due to the lack of christmas spirit that would normally make it fly yeah i loved that actually that was one of the things in the movie that i was fully on board with they're like well yeah but it only runs due to christmas spirit and we're running low on that so we also got this backup you know rocket thing and i just love the fact that it's you know it's just christmas spirit and it's this nebulous thing, this ethereal thing that can't be quanti- you know, can't be counted. It can't be, you know, even though there's a meter on the dash that can count it somehow, the, the audience isn't explained, you know, how actually it all works or anything like that. And we're just like, yeah, sure. Christmas spirit. That's what powers the slate. Go for it. Who cares? I actually really like that. Yeah, I think that was well done. I think a lot of the stuff in here is just nods to things and, and a, a way to, to, get some cutesiness in there and move the story along a little bit. Yeah. Now I wouldn't call Santa like a Hugo Chavez kind of style dictator guy. He seemed to be a pretty okay chap. He let uh, buddy just leave. And usually socialist hell holes, you know, they really kind of like restrict movement of people like put up walls. Yes. Like yeah. put up walls like in Berlin. Yeah. And oddly enough, um, this is, this is somewhat recent events. But uh, Talib Kweli, I, I'm not sure if I'm saying his right, his name right correctly, but he was uh, getting into a Twitter beef with Tom Woods a few months back uh, related to questions of secession. And and uh, Tom Woods is a historian and Talib Kweli is a rapper. And uh, Twali's, uh basic response to everything was, uh, you're a white supremacist Nazi to pretty much anyone, regardless of their race, creed. Checkmate, Woods. Origin. <laughs> um, so anyway, Kwali uh, uh, apparently just the other day tweeted about the Berlin Wall being a um, built by um, capitalists to keep, <laughs> what keep uh, keep the uh, what he had it totally backwards right he blamed capitalists or he, oh no he blamed the Nazis he blamed he he called the Nazis uh, capitalists and the Nazis who didn't exist anymore and blamed them for building the Berlin Wall Nazis yes who did not exist anymore. Right. Well, the, not in any structure of power. The, the and, political and no way building movement the that ran Germany up until the end of World War II, and then Berlin, which was divided down east and west, one half being controlled by the Western powers and then the other half being controlled by the USSR. And the USSR built the wall to restrict people from fleeing west towards more economic freedom. And he's saying capitalists... And the Nazis built the wall. The Nazis didn't exist as a political entity when the wall was built. Right, right. And and so he he basically had it all backwards. And people were correcting him on Twitter, you know, left and right on this thing. And uh, yeah, it's just kind of a funny, weird thing. But the Nazis were not involved in any way. And there were people leaving East Germany. And to stem the tide of people leaving East Germany, they built the wall. And I think, what did you say, 1961? And actually, Hans Hermann Hoppe discusses this in his book, Democracy, the God that Failed, the book that uh, we referred to extensively on our previous episode on the Outlaw King, or Outlaw King, not the Outlaw King. Yeah. Now, when I say the, uh, the Nazis didn't exist, I mean, they didn't control Berlin. I mean, there were some in Argentina, 
Some had come over, some Nazi scientists had come over to the United States through Operation, Operation Paperclip, but they didn't control Berlin and they certainly didn't build the wall. That's just, I don't know where he's getting that. But I've heard of this guy. I know um, many people in the freedom movement, you know, argue back and forth with this dude and he appears to be some sort of lost cause, but whatever. Fun fodder, I guess. Fun fodder. Yeah. And he's got a million followers. I'm not sure how many he paid for, but uh, it is it is kind of funny and interesting to see people so bad at the uh, history of things that they twist everything um, into everyone else being pure evil. So that's always fun. But let's get back to this movie and this uh, this idea that you brought up where Will Ferrell isn't good at anything. And the other elves actually make note of this to try to make him feel better, that he's good at like changing light bulbs or testing the smoke detector. And, you know, you'll have to do that again in like six months. Yeah, that was cute that they, you know, they still love the guy, you know, even though he was like a giant guy, he still had his uses. He was still useful. He could still do things, even if I, I think that, you know, that was all played up for you know, comedic stuff, but it sure seems like a big, strong dude who's way taller than you would have a significant amount of uses, even though it's not clear, you know, what actually gets made or built or is necessary. I mean, can Santa just wave his magic Santa wand and make things appear or what? Well, they got to make, they got to actually assemble the components like for the Etch-A-Sketches, right? And that that's where um, Ming Ming has the quota for buddy of a thousand and he's only done like 85 so he's 915 off the pace so buddy is very very ill-suited ill-suited to this um and that's you know where they get into the other talents and by the way and um anarchist mom just reminded me of this peter billingsley from a christmas story is ming ming so he's doing a bit of a christmas uh, genre cameo for this for this movie oh that's nice nice little cameos for uh christmas i mean christmas story is a classic yeah maybe, maybe that's one we could do uh, next year, perhaps. Do the uh, the leg lamp and the shoot your eye out stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's a movie that in my family we watched year after year after year. And uh, yeah, so it's got a bit of nostalgia for me. Yeah, I'd be down with that. And, you know, now Elf is going to have in my family a bit of a nostalgia because during the blackout of Christmas 2018 that we had here, uh, we had downloaded Elf before the blackout in anticipation because we knew that the windstorm was happening and I knew that we were going to be doing this movie for the show this week. And as a result of not having any other options, we watched Elf two, two and a half times with kids. And they love this movie, by the way. Uh, were they laughing or they just enjoyed it? They mostly laughed at the um, the troll farting. And okay. you know, a few other... Hilarious, A few other spots. A few okay. other spots. Uh, they, they really enjoyed it. They, they do like Elf and they, they have asked to watch it again. But, you know, they're also at that age and, and actually uh, Buddy plays this up pretty well where they want to watch things again and again and again. Like as soon as it ends, they want to watch it again. Uh, and they plow through life. Like every project they do or everything they do, even before they're done doing it uh, and, and there's a mess everywhere, they move on to the next thing and then to the next thing and then to the next thing. And as a parent, you can't keep up with them. It's like you're running 100 miles an hour in this direction and then you turn on a dime, go this direction. And Buddy does that very well, especially in the doctor scene where Favreau makes his cameo, where he's like totally scattered and, like, what's that over there? And he's eating cotton balls. And, oh, I made him mad. Oh, what's that thing? Oh, can I listen to your necklace? And when when he does that, my wife and I just looked at each other like, yep, that's our kids right there. Definitely. They do that all the time. So as a parent, you got some extra value, some extra added value out of this film. Oh, yes. Yes, most definitely. Oh, and, and one other thing I wanted to bring up was the montage of when he discovers that he's a human and he like gets all dizzy and falls down and he remembers, you know, his shoes not fitting or the shower being super small. Um, there's a picture of him playing basketball with the elves and he's like dominating. And I love that picture for some reason. Yeah, because they play on like a seven foot rim or something like that. And he's just reaching up and dunking. Indeed. 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 Minute Bull versus Muggsy Bugs. So where do we want to go from here? You already talked about Walter Hobbs a little bit, who is his father, and he's on the naughty list. And he's presented as an evil capitalist in this movie. And I, I think that's pretty much par for the course in most movies and media. Uh, but essentially, it boils down to him working too hard and um, kind of you know neglecting his family, like his son kind of is missing a bond with his, with his father, as we, we discover a little bit later on. Yeah, but can we talk about the laziness with which it slaps capitalism? Let's like, talk about the laziness of that because so, yeah, are you talking so, about the nun thing? Because because I I that pissed me off quite a bit actually. The nun thing? Yeah, where we first meet Walter and he's he's collecting the books back from the nun, like he's meeting with her, and she's like, "You're going to take the books from the children? 
And he's like, well, you didn't pay for the books. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Go right ahead, Daniel. Do you got some more to say about that? Well, it's just presented as he's this heartless evil guy. Right. As if capitalism only cares about the absolute bottom line, as if there's no such thing as public relations and good press. And I mean, part of the equation with which consumers use when they're purchasing a product is, is this a conscientious company? It's, they're not just providing the, the lowest value. Sometimes, you know, you'll go and you'll buy a product and you'll, you'll pay a little bit more for it if you know that you approve of the way in which a, a company does business, if you like the people that are in that business. So sure, sure. Yeah. People buy locally or buy American, even at their economic expense, because they feel better about it. And they'll boycott companies when they perceive them to be doing, you know, things they disapprove of, or they'll just, you know, choose a competitor or a higher price competitor, or they'll actively air grievances. Thank you. Best of us. Call back. Thank you. Uh, on social media about, you know, look at this terrible company doing X, Y, and Z and how terrible are they? And everybody should not, you know, use their business like I am. Aren't I great? Right. So, right. But in this specific instance, where he says he's taking the books back well, and he says, well, I see what you're trying to do here. And I'm not taking them back. You're not paying for them. And she says, but the children love the books. And he, he responds, I know I did. I ran the focus groups. <laughs> <laughs> but my point is she didn't pay for them. So he's totally within his right to take back unpaid for product. Right. I mean, sure. It's kind of shitty. And, and you're right. You know, he could be charitable. But he's under no obligation to be charitable. I mean, they had an agreement in place and she didn't follow through on her end of the agreement. 100%. And why would he? What about, what about this evil nun who's trying to steal books from him? Why isn't she? Why isn't that side played up? Well, you know exactly why. It's because the capitalist is always the evil twirling mustache villain in, in most entertainment, most TV and, and movies. And the nun is virtuous. Therefore, she deserves free books. I understand. Sure. Where's your heart, Daniel? I mean, it's just a whole bunch of people who worked to make those books and they don't deserve any money for making those books, do they? I mean, the printer doesn't deserve any money. I mean, it's not like it cost him resources and time and doesn't have people to feed. His employees don't deserve any money or food. Right. And it's not even that they deserve it or uh, that, that they should be guaranteed it. It's that they take the entrepreneurial risk of putting it out on the marketplace in hopes that somebody will be satisfied enough to exchange their goods and, and uh, services or uh, uh, mediums of exchange. So money in this case uh, to make that trade in a mutually right. beneficial situation. But by robbing James Kahn of these books, this nun isn't just robbing him. She's robbing everybody making those books, not just yeah. this one greedy capitalist guy. Right. Yes. Yeah. In, in, in a way, like as long as James Kahn's character, Walter Hobbs, has paid the printer or paid, you know, the, the, the wages of, of the people making the books, then he's on the hook for the loss. Right. Right. But if he doesn't have the money, if he doesn't get the money from the nun, then he's less likely to purchase more books from these printers in the future. Yes. In the future. Right. Anyway, so there's that. And then there's the callous way in which he doesn't want to fix a, a book that doesn't have all its pages. Right. Yes. Yeah. Because they're it's missing two pages of the book. And I guess it's the end of the story. And it's this children's book. And he decides, well, we could reprint it and it'll cost us 30 grand or we can just ship it. No one's going to read it anyway. People are going to buy the book, but the kids aren't going to read it or they're not going to understand it or whatever. No As one's going no to right. care. As if capitalists are so focused on short term profit and not taking the long view of what that decision would do for his customers. If he starts shipping out crappy books without pages, readers are going to notice whether he thinks they will or not. And in fact, they do later on in the movie. And he would know this. This is ridiculous. This is a cartoonish depiction of a capitalist. You wouldn't necessarily, I mean, sometimes people do sacrifice long-term for short-term, but this is like a, a, an established business where they have a reputation to consider. Right. And they've been profitable for years. Um, the, the owner is very upset that they're going to take a loss in that quarter. Yeah. And they got to consider, yeah, the future, the long-term future. You can't, if the, the minute you start shipping crappy books, you're opening yourself up for a competitor to steal your market share. Not steal, but rightfully take your market share. Right. Better satisfy consumers. Right. Exactly. So this is just like a cartoonish, ridiculous depiction of a capitalist and saying that this guy's evil. I mean, you could say that he's just a bad businessman, but that's really not what they're saying. It really isn't. They're trying to paint this guy as like your typical work too much, 
you know, screw people over bad guy. And that's why he's got to have a turn later on where he like redeems himself and quits. And I, I have issues with that as well. Oh, we'll get there. We will okay, get there, boss. Good. <laughs> but uh, I have a real, real world corollary to the missing the couple of pages of the book. So my kids are really into Paw Patrol right now. And by the way, it's going to be a Paw Patrol Christmas, man. It's going to be ridiculous uh, in, a, in a day or two here. Oh, lots of doggies. Oh, yeah. But um, because Paw Patrol is a very um, popular and lucrative, quote unquote, property, they uh, crack down on copyright infringement pretty extensively. And so as a result, any version of their show that you see on YouTube is altered in many ways. And uh, one of the, the key ways is that they will play about 10 seconds of whatever the show is and then jump cut uh, to like five or 10 seconds later. And so the kids will be watching an episode. And as a parent, you're like, wait, what the hell just happened? Wait, why are they over there now? Wait, that person got cut off mid-sentence and now they're over here. But the kids, they do not care. All they see are cartoon pups on there flying around doing crazy stuff. And the jump cut stuff does not bother them one bit. And that's how I interpreted uh, Walter Hobbs's response to the, you know, the kids aren't going to care about these two missing pages in the book because they're going to look at the pictures and not really follow the story anyway. And the parents are going to buy the book and everything, you know, no one's going to really notice this thing. Of course, it turned out to be wrong. Um, but I, well, I, it is interesting, though. Right. I mean, there may be a market for that level of quality. I mean, there's that's the beauty of the market there. It, it, it suits all tastes. Maybe these books get discounted. And you're right. The parents wouldn't care. And maybe the kids wouldn't care. And the parents would just be like, yeah, well, I got this for like 50 cents. I mean, who cares? And it, they read it and they still enjoy it anyway. Yeah. So I, I feel like we just spent a huge chunk of our Festivus episode on that uh, totally ancillary point. Uh, let's move along a little bit to another quirky little thing. Uh, John Favreau's brother is in this movie as the taller security guard who kicks him out of the Empire State Building, kicks uh, Buddy out, and tells him to go to Gimbel's, where they're having a meet Santa and tell him what you want. Yeah. Um, I didn't recognize Favreau's brother, but right on. It's fun for a, a director to get to put your friends and family into movies. Why not? Um, I would say that the the security company and the company that works at that place, has every right to eject Will Ferrell or Buddy at any time for any reason. So yeah, get him out of here. The security, he's not leaving the security. Please escort this person out. I have no problem with that. Sure, sure. physically remove him. Physically remove him. If he will not leave private property and he's being asked to leave, he's unwanted, he's trespassing. So please leave. Do so, you know, in as gentle as way possible. But if he's going to go kicking and screaming and you're dragging him out of there, then you're dragging him out of there. You're under no obligation to, you know, house this person. You just aren't. Right. And I think this is another situation of the fish out of water where he didn't understand kind of the, the customs of, you know, what goes on in an office building. And so he, he sings the, the weird song and does crazy things. And then they kick him out and physically remove him. And they tell him to go to Gimbel's because there's the Santa thing there. And there he hits on uh, Jovi, the singing uh, little elf, you know, dressed as an elf. She's not, she's a human. Um, did you find that his interaction with her was problematic in any way <laughs> in, in today's context? I mean, granted, this movie was only 15 years ago. But in in my you know recent viewing of it, uh, I found that w- how he interacted with her and how she rebuffed him rather forcefully in in, in many respects uh, that people would ha- would view that in a new light, much like they viewed the song that they sing as a duet uh, later on in a new light oh, these days. Well, this is interesting. I didn't I didn't see anything in their interaction as being like me too ish or problematic in that sense. I just saw that they were singing "Baby It's Cold Outside" and he was like creeping on her in the in the bathroom as being you know problematic and i hate that word but i'm going to use it ironically um but you're you're saying that the way that they spoke to each other would be some sort of an issue right please how 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 so sir this is when he first meets her uh he goes up to her at the tree and starts talking to her and she's like what why why are you messing with me and he says oh i'm just sharing your affinity for elf culture and they get into talking about singing or having christmas spirit and she's like i don't sing and he like he grabs her by the shoulders or like blocks her path because she's trying to walk away from him or get by him. And oh. he prevents her from doing so. Ooh. And yeah, that's a little intimidating. Right. Now, in 2003, probably not the big of a deal. He's trying to have a conversation with her. And he's, you know, in the, in the con- t- context of the movie, he's very innocently doing this. Right. 
But I right. think, you know, everything's viewed through a new lens these days. And that lens is very distorted into viewing everything as potentially rapey. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that, I mean, uh, probably the elves are like super long lived, right? They, I think they say that at one point in the movie, like his dad became a head, whatever, at like age 900 or something. Yeah. Papa Elf was like 400 and some odd or 900 years old. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, so are all elves when they're 30, 35, are they all still childlike or do they just not do a good job raising kids? Or is it, would any of those elves be as, you know, wondrous and ignorant and just kind of like childlike to any other human? All right. So I'm going to pretend that we're at this uh, used car dealership and I'm just going to tell you, don't look under the hood, man. Don't, don't look into the. Too late. I will look appropriately to not be infantile like. It seemed like he was the only infant in the movie. All the other elves in the North Pole seemed like perfectly normal, human, competent people. Elves. Mm -hmm. Very elvy. Yeah. Yeah, elvy, but, you know, like smart and like competent and know what they're doing. And if they had gone to New York, they'd be like perfectly normal, elvy people. But Will Ferrell, for some reason, even though he's 30 years old, acts like a big, dumb baby the whole movie. So it's not like he's just an elf. He's a dumb baby elf, which is weird. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're right in in that they probably didn't think that deeply into this. They just wanted Will Ferrell to be able to act childlike and, and in wonderment and awe of everything. And even though he is a human and raised uh, by elves, he actually does have some magical abilities, which kind of bothered me a bit in that, well, he's just a human. So how can he you know, throw these machine gun style snowballs at these kids? And how can he do that, um, you know, snip, 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 and then he expands this, um, you know, intricate cutouts of snowflakes or, or uh, you know, those little banner things that, that you, you fold it up and you cut it once and then you ex- expand it out and it's like this big banner of shapes, you know. Yeah, and so- he only needs to sleep like 15 minutes a night and he can do that, decorate that entire gimbals in one night. Right, yeah. So there is some magic going on with this guy. Yeah, and and the yeah the machine gun snowball thing I think you know is done for like a visual gag but it was very much like wait a minute this guy's just a human right it's not like they taught him secret elf techniques maybe but maybe. It didn't, I don't know now about that snowball thing did it seem to you that the the bully kids threw way too many snowballs for the given time period. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was I think there were a whole bunch of CGI snowballs that like were endlessly flowing because there was like a certainly there was like a hailstorm, like a rain of snowballs. There was just an impossible number from just the like five or six kids that were throwing them. Right. From all directions. I mean, yeah, it was like they, they all had the same elf ability. Right. Yeah. There was like a horde of them all shuffling constantly. And they had made, you know, hundreds of these things. Until Buddy somehow, yeah, turns the tables and is like a sniper with this endless ability. Yeah, he had a, a yeah. bump stock on his on his arm for the. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway. It'll get it'll get made illegal. So so baby, it's cold outside. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Okay. Well, we've already we have talked about this on the show before, but I think it was maybe in a little Kathleen Turner overdrive. Um, so I have no issue with you know, a a radio station not wanting to play a song. I mean, I don't care. You can play whatever song you want. But you got to say that it's kind of hilarious that, yes, I understand that, um, you know, proclivities change over time. And you think of yourself as more enlightened and whatever and more sensitive to, I don't know, rape culture or whatever the feminists have people believing in these days. I don't know. But Baby It's Cold Outside, in my view, is kind of an empowering song for a woman they it's it's the it's a woman trying to guard her reputation and they're kind of bemoaning and trying to come up with excuses of reasons to stay and be with this man that she wants to be with and they're you know they're talking about well we should leave yeah i want to stay you know they're coming up for excuses to stay so it's not like this pressure rapey vibe it's these two people that really want to be together instead of, you know, but she has to guard her her reputation to the society at large. Right. Because the social norms are that she shouldn't do that because she would be seen 
as some kind of a floozy or, or a slutty or something. Right. So, but, but the modern feminist movement has said that, no, this is like this dude pressuring her to stay. And so he can like roofie her or whatever. And yeah, it just seems to be getting the wrong end of the stick. I, I don't know. It, it's, it's real dumb, but that's pretty much everything they do in my, in my view is just real dumb, but it's funny that this happens in this movie because it, I don't, you, if they had made this movie today I, or if they make a sequel to this, you know, I don't think that they'll include it. Right now, Will Ferrell has said on multiple occasions he will not do a sequel to this. Uh, and now that he's like 50 years old compared to 30, 35 uh, when he made this, he probably wouldn't be nearly as nimble. But it's still, this song does strike me as a bit odd in this movie. And I think that maybe they were more looking at it as, well, it's kind of Christmassy and it's a duet and we need a duet. Right. Because, yeah, they have they have this storyline going on where it's, um, where Buddy says, you know, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is to sing out loud, something, something, right? For all, for all to hear. For all to hear. So when he first meets her, he's asking about how she sings. And then he finds out she has a really good voice. And so then at the very end of the movie, you know, then she she has a little bit of a character development moment. And she starts to sing in front of other people where before she didn't want to do that. She's only going to sing in the shower. So everybody's got a little bit of character development. It doesn't take much. It's just a comedy. So you can't expect a whole lot of character development. But every most characters do have a little bit of growth. You got the James Conn character who has a little bit of growth, even though it's dumb. And we'll get into it. But yeah, the Zoe Deschanel character has the singing thing. And that's her character development. So yeah, right. maybe it's a little bit odd. But for the plot, I understand why it's there. Right. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that particular song. It just ticked a couple of the boxes, I think, that they were looking for. Right. Yeah, there has to be a scene where he hears her singing and has to say that, man, she's got a great voice. And then she, later on, she's got to sing out loud Christmas cheer so that the sleigh can fly. Right. But not only does he have to hear her singing, but he also has to join her in singing it uh, to, to get the you know locker room scene to work. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a comedic moment where he slams into a stall door. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if you like the kind of slapsticky kind of humor. It's OK. But I... I think this is definitely like a child, you know, kids movie. Oh, yeah, I, I think it's rated PG. And I think, you know, if you're adolescent up to the point at which you're like, you know, maybe 10 to 12, I think this movie drops off considerably in terms of laughter. I still think that adults can watch it and get some kind of like, you know, good feeling charm type stuff out of it. But I don't think that the comedy has aged very well, although I don't really remember laughing a whole lot when I saw it for the first time. Believe it or not, I was alive in 2003 and I believe I saw this in the theater. Wow. Yes, you I really am that old. Dated yourself there. I just did it. Try and stop me, copper. <laughs> wow. Uh, so it, it, we do need to start winding down, unfortunately. So let's get into a couple of the things that we were saving for later. One, I believe, was the turn from James Kahn uh, that you found to be a bit hokey, and that was in repairing the relationship with his son by quitting his job. So let's dive into that for a bit. Yeah, so I, I it's really annoying. I mean, all he really has to do is say, man, I'm going to spend more time at home or man, I'm going to be more present when I'm around you, you know, and really value the time we spend together because daddy actually has to put food on the table because working for a living and providing value to people is actually something that should be celebrated. Not, well, I'm going to quit right now and yay, I did it. I quit. And now we're homeless because I don't know if you know this or not. It actually costs a lot of money to live in New York City. I mean, even though they got some horrific rent control situation that is turning that city into a disaster area, but it's it's a good thing to have a job. And I mean, sure, he's, he's probably, you know, got a whole bunch of experience. He'll get another job and blah, blah, blah. But I didn't appreciate the, you know, the, the pressure situation and then the celebrated turn of, I quit. It's not like his job was like horrible. It's not like his boss was unreasonable. I mean, maybe, you know, the only reason he was having to do this pitch is because he screwed up the other job. So he, it, it was all on him. He was the one that should have stayed and should have told it is a good lesson to teach his son. Like, no, son, I screwed this up. So I need to fix this. And this is me fixing this. And in life, you should, you know, stand up and solve your own problems. Right. And, and blah, you don't blah, get blah, the reward know. right away. You got to put in the, the effort. Right. It's a good teachable moment for a dad and a son. Instead, it's I quit. Yay, you quit, dad. We're all going to go hungry. You know, it's like, what? Ugh. Now he's like a non, you know, now he goes, graduates from being a capitalist to a socialist. And that's like a progression somehow. Now we're going on the dole, kid. 
Yay. Yeah, well, now James Conn's character also was responsible for driving Buddy away. He was, and that was inexplicable. Like, I'm not that the, the, I totally understood the whole driving Buddy away. I mean, he did just completely insult this man that they had brought in to help them with this project. Yeah, let's talk about Miles Finch a bit because there's some good there's some good meat in that. There is, but hang on just a second. Um, so he did, you know, embarrass the guy, and so he justifiably storms out. But why all of a sudden does James Conn have this turn where all of a sudden, oh no, I've got to find Buddy? Like I just kicked him out. And now I feel guilty. Maybe he feels a little bit guilty, but I think he was totally justified in saying, hey, buddy, get out of here. We can't have you acting like this in this situation. This is completely unacceptable behavior. And then so then he feels guilty and then he's going to quit his job to go find buddy all of a sudden for some reason in the middle of New York City. I mean, I don't know about you, but New York City isn't exactly the smallest little town that you can just go out there and find somebody. I mean, I know it's a movie and so they find him like immediately, but I mean, come on. If eh, anyway, well, my my take on it was that he went a step too far with Buddy and telling him to get out of his life and and never come back. And I think that might have been the seed of guilt that he had. And then his son coming saying, "Hey, Buddy left a message or left a note, and he's he's run away." And this is where Walter Hobbs kind of it dawns on him that not only did he screw up with Buddy, but now his son, who has been missing a relationship with him as well, is now asking for him to to help him. And so that's what helps him to turn. And then also his boss, uh, who had him meet on Christmas Eve, you know, in the evening on Christmas Eve, uh, which he probably felt was a bit too too much of a demand, too much of a, I hate this term, but to use ask as a noun, too much of an ask. Everybody else was there. That's true. Everybody, everybody, he was there on Christmas Eve. It wasn't like he was phoning it in from his home. And but all think, the other executives were there. But I think it was enough. Well, the whole board was there, actually. The whole board was there, and they were all there because... James Conn screwed up the other job. Not only did he screw it up, but the he said that even if those two pages were there, it would have been a crappy book. So what's, yeah. So, I mean, they should be firing his dumb ass. Right. <laughs> Basically, they should be firing him anyway. Um, but let's talk about Miles Finch a little bit because they bring this guy in who is so hyper-specialized in this very specific thing, this very sought-after niche thing that he can name his price and have, um, what do they call it, a rider of demands. Like the car must be 71 degrees, must be a Mercedes S-Class, picks me up from the airport. I need six bottles of spritzer water chilled. You know, all this stuff, all of these things in his demand because he can name his price, he can name his his demands uh, that he wants in the agreement before he will even uh, set up a meeting with them. Right, because he is, is so in demand because he has developed this one unique skill. Like if he was just like somebody who was good at sweeping floors, well, you could probably find a million people who could sweep floors pretty good. But this guy, there's only one of in the entire world that he's developed this one amazing ability to come up with incredible children's books. Related to vegetables or not. <laughs> right, so they're completely happy to do whatever he asks for just to get him there to pitch them you know, a few ideas. Right. And Tyrion Lannister is is so good that Hobbes's two writers who are on the payroll to write books for him, rather than writing books, they go and get Tyrion Lannister. Yeah. And one of them isn't one of them like uh, in Tenacious D and the other one is like uh, Conan's sidekick. Yeah. It's Andy yeah. Richter and Kyle Gass. Yeah. Who do a pretty good job. I mean, they're pretty funny. So yeah, they're, they're funny and they're, they're a little bit parts here. Yeah. It's funny to see them there anyway. So one other thing I wanted to bring up, and this is the end of my notes. Okay. I really enjoyed how the Central Park Rangers are depicted as the most evil bad guys ever. Like they are literally the Nazgul. They are the Nazgul. That was that was not accidental that they made them look exactly like the Nazgul. <laughs> and and basically, I mean, you know, they're these uh, highly specialized uh, police officers, right? Yeah, like all in black and storming around. Very menacing. I did appreciate that. What did you think of the the real world fact that it's illegal to damage a tree in New York City? Uh, I think it really should be down to who owns that tree and whether there is a property crime. Agreed. But yeah, they they made reference to Buddy cut down this tree in Central Park and James Conn's like, oh, so now my son's out there committing felonies. And I think it's Harvey Silvergate, who is a, an attorney who's written a book called Three Felonies a Day, where he talks about all of the myriad laws that are on the books in various jurisdictions in the United States, where on average, uh, every every adult human, every adult in the United States, on average, commits three felonies per day, whether they know it or not. Yeah, so I did appreciate that. That you know, Buddy 
just chops down a tree because, you know, he needed a Christmas tree. So he committed a felony unwittingly, just like all the rest of us. So that's good. All right. So any other points you want to make before we get into our final summary and review, Robert? Uh, no, I think we covered everything. There weren't a whole lot of notes that I took. Just a few, you know, beats that um, we have all covered. So let's let's wrap this bad boy up like a nice, big, fat Christmas present. All right. Well, I'll go ahead and, and give it a start. And uh, I meant to mention this earlier, but this role we talked about jim carrey briefly and how this would be a vehicle that would be something uh around that would be built around his kind of comedic style like some whole movies are built around letting the comedian do what they do like liar liar which was an episode we did uh, about two months ago was very much like that for jim carrey and it turns out in in reading the research on the background of this movie elf that jim carrey was considered for the role and turned it down and so i wonder if that's one of the reasons why we kind of see that similarity where it's, it's sort of one of those vehicles to, to kind of let that comedian do what that comedian does. Yeah. It strikes me as very much that. And I, you know, it, it, I think it worked. I think Will Ferrell plays that character. Well, I mean, it's a movie that's been well received and it's had legs that have lasted this long at least. So yeah, if anything, um, I think the momen- momentum is building. This is becoming a classic status already. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Much like Die Hard. As, a more deserving a film, but yes, much like Die Hard. All right, so here is my summary and review. Uh, I actually enjoyed this film quite a bit. Um, it has aged pretty well for me, and I enjoyed Favreau's directing and the uh, forced perspective that they do to make the size of the different characters when they're in the North Pole. Um, it seems actually rather um, rather convincing. There's only one moment where I notice where they're the... Uh, the Ming Ming character played by Peter Pillingsley, he he has his quota sheet and he passes it through a table that should be solid, but because of how they're shooting the scene and uh, and it's not you know CGI or anything, it's it's actually Will Ferrell's like super close to you and all the other characters are further away, and the set is built in such a way to where it looks like they are on the same plane, and for the most part, I think they did an exception exceptional job of that. Um, and the story, for the most part, it has a bit of a turn. You know, it's, it's got Hobbes, who's this caricature of the twirling mustache, uh, evil capitalist. Uh, who has got a poor relationship with his son. And so they build a turn for him. They have a turn for Zoe Deschanel with the singing bit. Um, a lot of it is the fish out of water story, like we talked about earlier. And it's really a vehicle to get Jim or not Jim Carrey, Will Ferrell to uh, do some childlike uh, comedy. And I think it works overall and ends up being rather sweet. And it did jerk a few tears out of me at the end not not like literal tears but a little bit of the choke yepness uh and uh bonus points for my kids enjoying it so i'm gonna go really high on this thing with an 8.7 robert (laughs) Mm. wow okay that's that's startling 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 review okay that's Uh, shocking that's shocking I am. I'm shocked right now. I don't even know. Um, I can't even. Uh, so Elf. What are we going to talk about? What are we going to say? Will Ferrell does a pretty good job playing this buffoonish child character. Um, no doubt enhanced by just like watching his own children probably at the time and kind of copying their mannerisms and the things that they would do. Um, I think it works okay. It's not you know rocket science. It's not. If if this movie is like a holiday classic, then the standards of holiday classic are not super high. <laughs> it's okay. It's very kind of paint by numbers, you know, let a comedian do his comedic shtick and we'll follow along. It's, it gets a few little clever points here and there that I do enjoy, like the holiday chair and the Nazgul and, you know, a few kind of fun things. Uh, Zoe Deschanel is smoking hot. Um, I thought that their interaction was, you know, fairly charming. So I saw a feel, you know, it wasn't like they had zero chemistry. It was a little bit forced, but, you know, of course it has to be. So you know, luckily there wasn't like a whole lot of like romantic scenes between them because I don't think they look like a good couple, but whatever. Um, I didn't laugh and I got to judge a movie, you know, comedy based on, you know, if it still holds up and makes me laugh. Um, I thought it was had a fair amount of charm, so I'm not going to give us a negative review. I think it's got the charm wins me over. Um, this is a movie I think where Metacritic gets exactly right. There's a 64% on Metacritic. So my rating is exactly a 6.4 for Elf. I, I recommend it only insofar as much that, you know, you can watch it with kids and stuff. I think after it, after you reach like your teenage years, the, 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 the comedy wears thin. 
but the charm probably lives on uh, much much longer and it carries it through so that's what you get from me tonight thanks right. everybody and merry festivus merry christmas and all of that everyone oh, yeah this is our christmas episode from the last nighters episode 51 and the show notes and more can be found at lastnighters.com slash 51 now speaking of christmas movies we we did do uh, a lot of talking about Die Hard, which, of course, stars Bruce Willis. Oh. And so what better way to follow up the second most Christmas movie ever than with a Bruce Willis movie like Death Wish, which we will cover next week on the show. Yeah, the not much celebrated Death Wish, what reboot, I assume it is, 2018. Yeah, it's, the, it's the new version a remake of the uh, original series starring Chuck Bronson. Uh, of which the first one is actually very highly re regarded uh, and they get um, m increasingly worse. Uh, and the fifth one was made when he was 72 years young. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So this movie, Death Wish, was recommended by a friend of mine who says that the last 10 minutes makes a really good argument. So we're looking forward to that. I want to see what this argument is and just how good it is. And we are going to evaluate that argument on the right, next yes. episode. Next episode. We, neither one of us have seen it just yet, but uh, we will be watching it this week as we celebrate the holidays with our friends and family. So I think that's going to do it for us on this Festivus evening, the night before the night before Christmas. Uh, so Merry Christmas to everyone. And if you want to uh, get some of our pre-show bonus content where we talked about uh, some Christmas gatherings that we both attended recently, uh, you can do so at lastnightage.com slash Patreon. Uh, also, as I mentioned before, Tom Woods has a 35% off deal on his Liberty Classroom product. And you can find that at lastnighters.com slash Liberty Classroom. There will also be links on the show notes page. Um, thank you again for joining us for this very belated episode. We do appreciate you sticking with us uh, due to the uh, delays caused by the power outage and the internet uh, taking me back to the anarcho-primitive stage. But we have since recovered and are new, now in a new golden age of completing the show. So thank you guys very much. And I will say good night from last night. All right, and we can continue a bit longer on the Actual Anarchy podcast, so thank you guys for sticking with us. Uh, episode 108 of the show. Now, Robert, I have a question for you related to our um, mutual uh, hangout the other day. Uh, this is related to contract and making a purchase and, and, uh, and different levels of information being available to the parties involved. So, Ooh, do you, go on. I'm titillated. Set the scene for you. So a, a guy I know, was buying a car off of a dealership, like a used car dealership. And they wanted $5,000 for this car. And the guy checked the car out, kicked the tires, checked you know, the oil and all this stuff, uh, drove it around a little bit, and noticed that there was a light on the dashboard. Not a check engine light, but another, another light. And he discovered what it was for. And it was for low transmission fluid. So he has this information. He goes back to the dealership and says to the to the sales guy, "Hey, that light there, that's a transmission light. It's a it's a warning about a transmission problem." Did he lie because technically he did not, but he had different information and he led in my mind, he led the salesperson to believe that it was a far more serious issue and this was a negotiating tactic to get the price of the car lower. So your question is, did he in fact lie and did he do something like immoral? Right. Well, first of all, I don't think it's a crime to lie to a used car salesman. Those, those shady shysters, let me tell you. Um, one, 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 one rung above politician, right? Right. So it's like lying to a politician or a government person. It's like, yeah, I hold nothing against you if you do that. Um, it's interesting. It's technically lying. Technically, I would say. Um, it's it's also the the salesman's job to know about the car, right? So... Whether or not he's saying one thing, it's the salesman's job to know better. So even if he comes in and says, hey, this light says that the car's going to explode in like five miles unless you spend $10,000 to repair it. You know, the, the salesman's job is to go, yeah, right, buddy. I know the real thing. And to, you know, counter offer and counter, you know, argue. So when he comes in and says, yeah, this is this means it's a transmission light. Okay. 
then me on the, the salesman side would go, okay, so what's your offer for the car then? Are you offering for the car? And it, it whether or not his offer is believable, because if he really thinks that this transmission light means that the transmission's gonna go, that's like a $2,000 job easily, unless you're gonna do it yourself, which nobody's gonna do it themselves. You could probably buy a used transmission for maybe you know 1500, I mean, depending on the car, of course. These prices all vary wildly, but it's, you know, not if it's really truly the transmission is going out, it's almost not worth it to buy the car. Like the value, it could be, you know, three or $4,000 to fix the transmission on a car when the price of the car is 5,000. But if he comes in and he offers, you know, like 4,000 for the car, it's like you could call his bluff and go, yeah, you don't really think because you're not going to pay $4,000 if you think that the transmission is really going to go out. But if he comes in and says, well, I'm only going to pay $1,000 for it. And you're just like, well, somebody else is going to pay me 4,500 so you can take a hike. Um, technically, yeah, I would say he's probably lying, but that's part of the negotiation game. You're also kind of testing out, you know, what does the other guy know? Right. What, and there's a disequilibrium in, in the amount of information that each party has possesses. Right, right. So yeah, you're not being completely honest. Are you being immoral in some way? Eh, it's like lying to the government, man. I, I really don't hold it against you. If you, if you, if you have the morals where like, I'm never going to tell a lie. And I know somebody like that. I'm never going to tell a lie. And no matter what the other person does, like I had this conversation, this is like bizarre to me, but this was this person's stance that if someone comes up to you and holds a gun to this person and says, give me all your money, this person would go, okay, you know, here's, here's my money. I've got all this money and this is where it is. And here you go. This person wouldn't say, you know, like, okay. And gives them like, you know, 20, but wouldn't tell them about the $50 in their shoe. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to tell you, here's my money. And I, oh, I also have $50 hidden in my shoe. Here you go too. What would be the point of hiding in your shoe if you're just going to divulge it anyway? Right, right. But you know what I mean? Like, because somebody's coming up to you and threatening your life, you're still going to honor them with the truth? And you cannot tell a lie, right? Okay, yeah. But in that person's mind, they're like, just because they're, nothing they can do can, you know, make me betray my principles and I'm going to live up to those principles no matter what. And this person admirable. Not, yeah, it's, it's a fairly admirable thing. But in my view, you don't owe that person any truth whatsoever. This person doesn't care about you and is going to violate your right to life for 50 bucks or whatever they can get out of you. They don't deserve any kind of truth. Just like I don't care about, you know, lying to the government. They, they're a bunch of pack of, you know, they're a pack of thugs. You don't, they don't deserve the truth. You know what I mean? They haven't earned the truth. They don't dear deal with you fairly and honestly. Yeah. They lie for a living. That's uh, certainly like you, a thing. Right, like you call them professional extortionists. It's, you know, they're they're not dealing with you fairly. Why do you have any obligation to deal with them fairly? But if you if you have them, you know, that tenant where I'm gonna tell the truth no matter what, you know, I guess more power to you, I suppose. And and you know, this person would divulge, you know, every little last thing. Right. So if they were buying this vehicle, they would go, you know, that's a trans transmission fluid light. It means that the fluid is low. Right. And so yeah, just put a little more fluid in, it'll be fine. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, my take on this was that he's he's definitely withholding pertinent information that would reveal the true nature of the problem. And he's doing this purposefully to right. let the person, the, the other party, believe the worst. Right. And that, to me, feels a fairly dishonest thing, even though technically saying it is a transmission light, which is true because it's transmission fluid, but it's not a truthful statement. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, they're 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 kind of lying by omission a little bit. But that uh, that person's also under no obligation to say anything and just say, yeah, there's a light on, and I gotta get, I would have to get that checked out because right. so you know you're, it you're could be it down to the buyer well, beware, you know, due diligence thing. So like, if if somebody comes back to you with this story, well, that's a transmission light. Well, then the seller should go and say, okay, I'm gonna go confirm what this light is and see what potential impact that might have on the value of the vehicle. Well, even if. I mean, as the person, as you're test driving out a car and a light pops on or a light is on, just because the light is on and it says, you know, it's an engine, you know, it's a fluid level light. And isn't that always a thing? Like as soon as you buy a, a new car, like a used car and it's new to you, like invariably within a, a week, some fucking thing goes wrong with it. Yeah, absolutely. But that's my point. Like 
you don't know. You don't know if the there's some kind of faulty electronics and it's like false positive or if it's accurate and that it's just some fluid that needs to be replaced. It still requires some attention. And that's probably the first thing you'll do is add some fluid. But if that doesn't fix it, that's still, you know, some unknown, some there is some possible issue that may cost more in the future. I think you're fully within your morality to use it in the bargaining process. For sure. Whether or not, if you say, well, yeah, it's probably the transmission is going to die. That's probably taking a little bit too far, but I wouldn't be against using it in the, the negotiations. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I don't know what they have to do with Elf. And I think this is maybe more Kathleen Turner overdrive level content, but we threw it into the uh, actual anarchy for uh, it's our festivist bonus for everyone here. <laughs> yeah, baby. Go out there and air some grievances and, you know, lift some things yeah, commit some feats of strength and then um you know even if that's like lifting a turkey leg into your mouth you know it's that still takes some strength and then you know hug the people you love and uh, hopefully you get some good good loot and you gave some good loot and uh, you get you get a little bit closer with your family so get out there and do that all right well said robert and uh i'll just add my message of happy holidays to everyone who's a listener and supporter of the show we do appreciate you guys very much we'll be coming back Next week with Death Wish 2018 with Bruce Willis. And uh, we have a whole slate of shows planned for uh, next year and uh, maybe some graphical changes that you guys will start seeing in some of the artwork and all that. So it should be some good times. Enjoy your friends and family. uh, Spread that peace and love and joy and all that stuff and uh, enjoy your holiday. Thank you guys for joining us for the Actual Anarchy Podcast, episode 108. Good night, everyone. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do